Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Here we are, getting ready to do the last part of Daniel 11. And you know what's so interesting to me, Nikki? We ended last week with chapter 11, verse 35, where we're just learning about all the atrocities of Antiochus Epiphanes in detail. Mm -hmm. And then it tells us that some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. And then from there, we move into what we're talking about today, and suddenly we go from Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century BC to the future, Antichrist. There's nothing recorded in Daniel 11 between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. How surprising is that? (laughs) So, before we start this, I just wanted to ask you, Nikki, as you've gone through chapter 11, as you've gone through these last prophetic parts of the book of Daniel, what's changed in your mind? What's changed in your head as you think about this stuff that we've been talking about? You know, after going through this with you, what is different now is that I approach scripture and the topic of the church and Israel and God's hand in human history with a lot more confidence. Me too. That's the big thing for me, having gone through this much of Daniel. So, can you talk about that a little more? What do you approach with more confidence? Well, I don't feel like I need to hold some of the ideas that I had previously as loosely as I was. For example, I understood that I wasn't Israel. I know that. Right. And I have believed since before we came to Daniel that the church and Israel are different. This, I believe, is taught in other parts of scripture. I think it's clear personally. But when it came to the matter of eschatology and how things are going to play out, I'm not saying I have it figured out. I'm not saying I know. But through the study that we've done, I feel far more confident that the scriptures point to what I have vaguely felt like I've seen, if that makes sense. Yes, complete sense. In fact, you've just described my own reaction. It just looks like the reality of the church as a separate body from Israel is so clear because of Daniel. I never expected Daniel to clarify anything like that to me. I'm not sure what I thought it would do, but I didn't expect that. Yeah, and I had heard at like at the 2016 conference, and Elizabeth took us through Daniel at one point in a women's Bible study. Yes. And so I had heard that Daniel deals with the Gentile nations and with Israel. Yeah. But going through it on your own, not so much on our own, we've done this together and with commentators, but going through it carefully and not just being... A seat in the audience on a weekend, Mm -hmm. going through it carefully and and looking through it as if it's archaeology. Right. You know, you own it in a way that you don't otherwise, I guess, that I didn't. It seems real instead of theoretical. Yeah. And you can't argue with it. Yeah. You just have to be willing to look at it. Which brings me back to the thing that we've been saying often as we've gone through this book, especially in these latter times when we've gone through so much prophecy. It's the idea of our hermeneutic. Oh, yeah. The hermeneutic 
that we use has to be consistent wherever we study the Bible, or we don't have anything firm to stand on. Do you want to just review, Nikki, what is the hermeneutic that we use? Well, we use the historical grammatical hermeneutic, and we read the Bible just like any other book that we read. Context is everything. Everything. Words matter. Mm -hmm. Grammar is incredibly significant, Yes, which we'll see today when we're looking at some pronouns. Right. These things matter. They mattered to Jesus. Yes. Jesus talked about the jots and the tittles. That's Mm -hmm. grammar. That's right. And spelling. Yes. Yes. Uh This stuff matters. And so when you adopt this hermeneutic and you apply it to every passage, it's part of the hermeneutic to understand the genre you're in. Right. You don't just treat every letter like it's the same genre. No. But you read every letter like you would read any other piece of literature from that genre. So the hermeneutic is what has clarified Daniel so much to me over the last several weeks. And understanding that I can trust the words and believe the words has changed everything for me. We are going now from verse 35 in Daniel 11 to verse 36. There's no space between the verses in the book of Daniel, but in reality, there's thousands of years. So far, we have been through approximately 2,500 years since Antiochus Epiphanes did his thing and passed off the scene of history. That was all covered up through verse 35 in Daniel. Now we're going to start a passage in this chapter that's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. Now, Nikki, before we do that, I think we should mention that we got a letter just last night from somebody listening to the podcast who said, thank you for giving this history. How come Adventism made such a big deal of refusing to admit that Antiochus Epiphanes is figured in here? We've talked about how Antiochus Epiphanes and his reign of terror was described in more detail in the last part of the portion of Daniel we covered last week. But we first met Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 8 as that little horn. That is where Adventists begin by saying, oh, that's not Antiochus, which then, of course, sets them up to not even deal with Daniel 11, where he's really a big figure. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, they really need that to be the Pope. They do. That little horn in Daniel 8. They need that to be the Antichrist Pope. Yes. For their particular eschatology and worldview. Mm -hmm. And remember, where Antiochus Epiphanes is introduced in Daniel 8 as the little horn on the shaggy goat, that is the place where they get their key text, their proof text for the investigative judgment, Daniel 8.14. And if it's Antiochus Epiphanes, their whole scenario of the investigative judgment falls apart. And everything they do with Daniel 9 then, everything they do with Daniel 10, it's down a completely different track than the Bible itself is laying. Because if that little horn isn't Antiochus Epiphanes, but the Pope then there's no place for their whole scenario with the investigative judgment. It's all tied together. Do they teach through the book of Daniel? I've been trying to figure that out. I was never taught through the book of Daniel. They use it, as Richard said, primarily for proving the investigative judgment and vegetarianism. So they proof text Daniel. Okay. So they use it so far as it has anything to do with them. 
talk about eisegesis instead of exegesis. Mm -hmm. They come to this entire central book of prophecy, and they use it to enhance themselves. And the parts that don't apply to themselves, they ignore. So, to the best of my knowledge, that's the best I can answer the person who was asking the question. They don't talk about Antiochus Epiphanes because it ruins their worldview. They make it something else. I have to say that they probably also get some peripheral support for that from the fact that they follow an interpretive pattern that might be called historicism instead of futurism. There's a tradition within parts of Christianity that says that the eschatological books like Daniel and Revelation are not actually telling the future, but they're telling the story of the development of the church from Israel down through the ages, and they try to make these eschatological prophecies apply to different events in the history of the church. Adventism has done that to a fault. With that particular viewpoint, Antiochus Epiphanes didn't figure much because he didn't have a lot to do with their view of themselves as part of the church. What I struggle to understand is why even the church would want to put themselves into Daniel. If so many other letters in the Old Testament can be set aside as part of the Old Covenant and not applying, why was Daniel not a part of that since that was written to Daniel for Israel? Why then do parts of the church put themselves in Daniel and say not Leviticus. (laughs) That's a good question. Probably because Daniel clearly is dealing with things in the future, where Leviticus was clearly dealing with stuff in Israel. Well, but Daniel is dealing with stuff in the future in just a few verses. (laughs) That's true. Really? That's true. Most of the book of Daniel has been fulfilled and fleshed out in in history. From our perspective, on this side of the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's a really good question for which I have no answer. I don't know why. Hermeneutic does seem to be a big thing. Tradition seems to be a big thing. Once a religious tradition gets locked into a certain way of interpreting scripture, it seems like it's really hard to challenge that. I think I understand it a little better than I might have, because I understand how hard it is to challenge the hermeneutic we used as Adventists. It's really hard to challenge something that has shaped a worldview. You know, I remember when I left Adventism and Richard and I were starting to, you know, read books that we were afraid to read, like Revelation, and Mm -hmm. we started realizing that there were things like Revelation 20 that suggested that there's a real physical millennium on earth. That was both exciting and terrifying because it raised questions we'd never had before, like, how could this be? How could people who are resurrected be living on the earth with people who aren't? Um, It just raised all kinds of questions that were not part of my worldview. And I remember feeling like it didn't make sense. It added a whole segment to the future of the world that I hadn't thought about before. And it seemed like too much to deal with. And I had to keep reminding myself that I had to deal with the words and I couldn't ignore them. I don't know how to fully answer that question, but I do think that people with a tradition of how they think things are going to be have a really hard time looking at the actual words if the words suggest that their preconceived ideas are maybe not all there in Scripture. It doesn't mean that other views are heretical, and I think that's really important for us to remember as well. 
Mm-hmm. People who truly believe in the finished work of Jesus and trust Him and are born again can have honestly differing views of these things. But for me, Nikki, going through Daniel with you has cemented our hermeneutic in my head to a place that I can't imagine doing it any other way. Mm-mm. I don't understand all the other hermeneutics. So to be fair, I haven't studied them. But this is the hermeneutic that my 13-year-old daughter who knows how to read any other book can sit down and pick up the Bible and read it. Yeah. And learn what God has for her there. I see what you're saying. It makes sense because we're reading this the same way we read any other book. We're not, quotes, spiritualizing it or making it something mysterious that hasn't been revealed. We know what he has told us. We don't have to add to that, subtract from that. We just read the words and take what we know he's saying and let the rest that is still unclear remain unclear. Mm-hmm. So, Nikki, as we um, start this last part of Daniel 11, would you read this portion of it for us? It's verse 36 to verse 45. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all." But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape." But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, when we go back up to 36... 36 has a list of things this king is going to do. The king, it says. But Nikki, before we talk about those, can you comment on what is going on between verses 35 and 36 and how we know it's talking about a different time and not Antiochus Epiphanes? Yeah, so that's, of course, linked to verse 35. Right. So in verse 35, it says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases. This is speaking of the end time. And while it may not seem clear to everybody just reading those two verses, it will become clear as we look at how this king is described, what this king does, and you compare this king to the king spoken of in the verses above, and it is not the same person. That's true. Not only that, there are time markers 
that we just read. In verse 36, it says, then the king will do as he pleases. And then it says that he will prosper until the indignation is finished. Indignation is spoken of as God's wrath. Then it says, for that which is decreed will be done. Mm -hmm. Even the word then shows that what's coming next is after what was last mentioned, which is the things that are still to come at the appointed time, then these will happen. There's a space of time, apparently, between verse 35 and 36, between Antiochus Epiphanes and between this new king that's being introduced, who appears to be the Antichrist. Well, what can we conclude about that space of time? Well, it seems to match the space of time between the 69th and 70th week, because we see that all of these other prophecies have been fulfilled up to verse 35. Yeah. And now what we're going to read, we'll see, has not yet happened. Daniel received this vision, which takes up Daniel 10 through Daniel 12. He got it all at one time, and all of it was in the future for him. The angel made it clear that what's going on in the first part of Daniel 11 is going on between Israel and the nation of Medo-Persia, and then the subsequent nation of Greece and the divided nation of Greece. And that's where that ends. This is all in Hebrew. It's written for Israel. But 35 is where all of those events end. And then 36 is something that happens that we can see hasn't been fulfilled yet. We are reading this from the perspective of over 2,000 years since Antiochus Epiphanes did his horrible deeds. And we can look at this and see that everything in this first part is done After all these years, the last part still isn't. So we're literally living in the space between verse 35 and 36. And when I look at it that way, I think there really is a gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week as described in Daniel 9. We are living in that gap. This last part still hasn't happened. And this last part that we're going to read about and study today is still applying to Israel. This is like that 70th week that's cut off from the 69 weeks in Daniel 9. Daniel 9 wasn't as clear about the length of time between the 69th and the 70th week, but it clearly separated them. So the 70th week is not written as if it's connected to the 69th week. Mm -hmm. But now in Daniel 11, we see there's a gap Mm -hmm. of a couple thousand years at least. So we know that this is something still to come and we're living in a space of time that's not prophesied in this chapter. It's just hinted at. And we know that what this chapter is about is about what's happening to Israel because the angel kept telling Daniel, this is about what will happen to your people. We as the church are not part of Israel. We're not part of Daniel's people as he knew them back when he lived. So this last bit is about what's going to happen at the end times to Daniel's people. Okay, so with that being said, let's look at the specific things that's going on with this king that's coming. In verse 36, what is the first thing that the angel tells Daniel about this coming king? What will he do? What will he be like? Well, he's going to do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll speak blasphemous things against the god of scripture. And he'll prosper until the indignation is finished. That's right up to the end. 
I know. Now, I think it's really interesting to compare these qualities of this man with what we know other places in the Bible say about both Jesus and the Antichrist. Now, let's review the meaning of the word Antichrist. What does Antichrist mean? Against Christ. Against Christ. He's going to be a figure that is opposed to Christ, and he's going to try to counterfeit him. But when we look at these specific things, we have some passages to compare it with. When it says that he is going to do as he pleases, we know he will be very self-willed and he will not bow to any authority. Compare that to what Jesus said of himself in John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, what are we seeing there as a contrast with this king when we look at the Lord Jesus? What are we seeing? Well, the Messiah is submitted to the God of Scripture. He's submitted to his Father. Yeah. And the Antichrist does whatever he wants. He's submitted to no one. Yeah, exactly. Now, the next thing we see is that he exalts and magnifies himself above every god. He doesn't submit to any religious, spiritual authority. But what do we know about Jesus? We know from Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, that is the picture of submission to God, Mm -hmm. to submission to the will of God. Very different from the Antichrist who exalts and magnifies himself and submits to no one. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul confirms this description that Daniel has of the coming Antichrist. And he says this about the coming lawless one. He will be the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, this just exactly matches what Daniel is describing here. And then the next thing, speaking monstrous things against the God of gods. Well, what does Revelation tell us about the Antichrist? In chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And then it also says that this coming king will prosper until the indignation is finished, and that which is decreed will be done. So, we find that he is going to prosper for a limited time. There's a moment when it will be done, and it will apparently be during this 70th week of Daniel 927, the end of what's going to happen to Israel. It doesn't happen up until the end of the 69th week if we look back at Daniel 9, but this is all stuff that's going to occur in the future because it hasn't happened yet. So, we look next at verse 37, where we find that Angel is telling Daniel that this coming king, who we will see increasingly clearly cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor for any other god. Well, what can we know from that? What is he essentially saying about him? Well, we can see that this king that is being discussed here is going to have some kind of religious upbringing, but he's going to abandon it. 
Yeah, because he knows who the gods of his fathers are, but he's not going to regard them. Right. And that is a contrast to Antiochus Epiphanes, who did regard his ancestral gods, and he didn't worship a god of fortresses in place of his deities. We have evidence in history that shows that he actually gave a lot of money to different cities to honor these gods, the gods of his fathers and the gods of these cities. He was known for this. I think that's really important, Nikki. Antiochus Epiphanes did honor the pagan gods that he knew, perhaps to a fault. There are some historians who suggest that perhaps he honored the gods even more than the people who came before him. Yeah, he was known for this. We have evidence from one commentator, Livy, who said, Nevertheless, in two great and important respects, his soul was truly royal. In his benefactions to cities and in the honors he paid to the gods. And then Polybius wrote, In the sacrifices he furnished to cities and in the honors he paid to the gods, he far surpassed all his predecessors. We know that he gave gifts to Greek cities of religious nature, that they benefited the cults and the gods of his fathers. We have this on record. It's a historical fact. If the verses we're looking at today are describing him, then they're in conflict with one another. That's right. We clearly are seeing a different man who has no respect for the gods of his fathers. He's a god unto himself. I think another thing that's really interesting is says he shows no regard for the desire of women. Now, this has been a passage that's been really hard to translate, hard to understand, and contested by commentators over the years. Nobody has offered a completely certain interpretation of this. People have argued that the desire of women was the Messiah, that every Jewish woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah, so the Messiah is the the desire of women. Others have said, oh no, it's the female goddess Tammuz, who was a fertility goddess. That's what it's talking about. But none of that really seems to match the words. I really appreciated the comments of John MacArthur on this passage, and especially today, when you look around our society and you see the gender issues, the confusions, the transgenderism, the LGBTQ movements, the all of these things that are going on in our culture today, and you read these words and you think, perhaps this man is a homosexual. Perhaps he is completely asexual in his approach to life. It sounds as though he is not driven by the normal human desires and passions, that he's living for something else. And it actually goes on to say, not only is he not regarding the gods of his fathers or the desire of women or for any other god, even a god of somebody else besides his fathers, but we go on and learn that he serves a strange god whom his fathers did not know, who is a god of fortresses or otherwise translated a god of forces. He's a god of war. He's a warring person. And he ends up living, giving his what would otherwise be considered obedience and obeisance of worship to the God of conquest and the God of war. While we can't say for sure, and we're looking at these words projecting into the future, just looking at the words themselves, it looks as though this man may be, in the words of John MacArthur, perverted. He may not have normal human passions, normal human affections, normal human desires for family, for relationships. He's serving something else. 
and it's not a normal looking profile of a normal looking man. It's interesting, isn't it? How this profile follows Romans one. That's a great point. Not acknowledging God, not giving thanks to God, doing as he pleases, being given over. And the perfect representation of complete depravity is absolute narcissism. That's a really good point. It does reflect that. Romans 1, the last part of Romans 1, 18 and onward to the end. It really is that. So he will magnify himself above all. He will demand worship. He will be the embodiment of, like you said, narcissism, self-love, perverted, and no natural affinity for normal love, normal family ties, or normal worship of God or gods. So then in 38 and 39, what does he say here about this man? Well, in 38, he says, instead, he'll honor a God of fortresses, like you said, a God whom his fathers did not know. And it's interesting because it says above that he's going to magnify himself above all of this. But then we read that he will honor this other God with gold, silver, costly stone, and treasures. In other words, it appears that he's going to give great wealth into the service of war and conquest. It also says he will give honor to those who acknowledge him in verse 39 and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So apparently the people that get on board with him and respect him, he will honor them and he will give them the right to rule their own land, but under his cruel and sovereign authority. It's very similar to Revelation 13, isn't it? Yes. There's a quote by J. Vernon McGee that is really kind of interesting about this. He says, Antichrist will honor the God of fortresses who has the kingdoms of the world. Who is that? Well, McGee says, it was Satan who offered to Christ the kingdoms of the world and our Lord rejected his offer. Apparently, Satan had a right to make that offer. Antichrist will accept the offer and become the world's dictator. We're told in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 and Revelation 13 4 that Antichrist will accept worship and will have the world worshiping Satan in that day, and the kingdoms of the world will be under his rulership, the first truly worldwide dictatorship. Antichrist will be the pliant tool to completely do the will of Satan in that day. He will rule over many people and dispose of property as he pleases. He is the willful king and the final world dictator. So we move on to verses 40 to 45, where we have a summary of some of the Antichrist battles and battle plans. What do we learn, Nikki, in verse 40? Then it says, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. And what I like to to just point out here is that it says at the end time. So we're definitely talking about a warp speed time travel from verse 35 to 36, because we're suddenly at the end time. Absolutely. And it's that same king. So we are looking at a king at the end time. Yeah. And then in verse 41, he will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Now, first of all, Nikki, what's the beautiful land? That's Israel. So what are we learning the Antichrist will do? He'll be 
fought against. He'll be squeezed from the north, squeezed from the south. He's going to fight and enter many countries, overflow them, pass through, apparently leaving havoc in his train. And then he's going to enter Israel. And many countries will fall. But interestingly, at the last bit of 41, who isn't going to fall? Edom, Moab, and the former sons of Ammon. I find that fascinating, and I can't totally explain this, but Edom, Moab, and Ammon are the areas in the Middle East that are just to the east of the Jordan River. In fact, Ammon, the city of Ammon, is the capital of what we know as the country of Jordan. Moab is just a little north of that. These are all the areas that are just east of the Jordan, just outside of the nation of Israel. This is the area where the sons of Ishmael, the Arabs, live today. Isn't that interesting? I can't explain this. I don't know why, but it's part of the prophecy that these areas, these regions, will not be captured by the Antichrist for some reason. I also think it's interesting, and I don't know if it has any significance here or not, but when I think about it, Edom was the territory that descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. Moab and Ammon were the two sons of Lot's daughters after they left Sodom and Gomorrah. And these nations had always been enemies of Israel, and yet God had ordered that Israel not treat them like the Canaanites because they were related. Even Ishmael, obviously, was related. So Mm -hmm. I, I can't explain this, but I find it fascinating, and I had never noticed this before. That's really interesting. And then in 42 and 43, what do we see? But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. It's interesting, first of all, that there are hidden treasures out there. Yeah. (laughs) And also, the Libyans and the Ethiopians are going to, I don't know, they're going to fall to his charismatic influence. Yes. And these are all the regions in North Africa which have had historic connections with Israel, with the Middle East, all through Bible times. Mm -hmm. The Queen of Sheba, they think, actually came from Ethiopia. There's just all these connections, historical connections, and this is the territory that he's going to conquer, and they're going to follow him. And then, in 44 and 45, reports will reach him that the king of the north and the east are going to attack him again. Well, if you're thinking on a map, <laughs> what's east of Israel? What's east of the Middle East? Asia. So, whatever this is, whoever these people are, this Antichrist will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And it also says he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion where? Between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. So, Nikki, what is the holy mountain? Well, that's the Temple Mount, and it's also Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac. Isn't that interesting? That that is the place where the temple was built, and the most holy place was built on the area, apparently. There's a rock there that they say is the rock where Abraham offered Isaac. So, that's the historical significance of this holy mountain. And this is between what seas, essentially, if you look at a map? The Mediterranean Sea. And the Dead Sea which is a little to the south and a little to the east. The location is clear. So the Antichrist is going to go out. 
he's going to be really disturbed by rumors of forces from the east, from the Asia area, and from the north, and he's going to go out with great wrath to destroy and annihilate, and he's going to pitch the tents of his royal pavilion. In other words, his headquarters, his royal headquarters, he's going to pitch them on the Temple Mount between the seas. And yet, it says, what's going to happen? He will come to his end, and no one will help him. And thus ends Daniel 11. Now, I think it's really interesting that we know a little bit about this end. If we look back at Daniel 7, where Daniel had the vision of those horrible beasts, and the fourth beast had the little horn that was blaspheming God and reviling the saints, we see in verses 9 to 12 what happens to that little horn, which is this Antichrist. And this is what it says in Daniel 7, 9 to 12. As I looked, thrones were placed And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Isn't that interesting that in that vision of the beasts, we see in that vision the end of this Antichrist. The whole beast with the horn is going to be thrown into fire. (laughs) And it says here at the end of Daniel 11, he will come to his end and no one will help him. And clearly it's God himself who is going to bring him to an end. No political force, no military might. This is God. And also in Revelation 19, 17 to 20, we read a description of the same ending of the same Antichrist. This is what John saw. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Isn't that fascinating? Daniel had already received a vision describing in picture the end of this Antichrist. And John later is going to receive a vision that has even more detail how this beast is going to be destroyed by the Lord Jesus and thrown alive into the lake of fire, and no one will be able to help him. And it's interesting to me that even Zechariah in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, prophesies the Lord returning to Jerusalem and ending 
the great battle that is being described here in Daniel 11, that he's going to end the battle there in Jerusalem. And this is what Zechariah saw. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, obviously, Nikki, we're reading prophetic descriptions that haven't happened yet. But there's a similarity here, and what we see is consistent in all of these descriptions that we've read, is that this Antichrist and the battling nations are going to be stopped by God himself. And this Antichrist is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and no one will be able to stop it. So, what I take from this, Nikki, is that we can know that God wants us to have a sense of what's happening in the future. Mm -hmm. He's revealed this. He gave Daniel this. First, it's in Hebrew so that his people will know what to expect. But secondly, it's for all of us. We are supposed to know what to expect so that when it happens, we will not be surprised and we'll not be terrified as we see events unfolding. God is not a trickster. He's not hiding from us. He's revealed the big picture of his dealings with the world, and he's shown us that there are spiritual powers working against his people and against his nation of Israel. And we've seen that God's purposes will be fulfilled. He won't neglect his promises to Israel. He won't blur our identity as his body, the church, with his nation of Israel. We live with an advantage that even Daniel didn't have, because we have the fact of Jesus' resurrection, his death for our sin, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day. He has already accomplished the full atonement for human sin, and he has already broken the curse of death into which each one of us is born. And when we trust him, we pass from death to life. Jesus himself said that in John 5, 24. And the fact that an Antichrist is coming and that wrath and cruelty and terror will sweep across the earth is not a threat to anyone who loves Jesus. And if you're facing your life right now and looking at these passages in Daniel and it feels terrifying to you or uncertain, you can know something. That terror and that uncertainty can be brought to an end right now. When you realize that Jesus has come exactly as he was prophesied to come, that he has done exactly what the prophecy said he would do to take care of human sin, and that he went to the cross bearing your sin in his flesh on that cross, and that he endured the wrath of God for your sin so you don't have to, you can trust that Savior. You can bring your sin and your life to him. And confess that you need to be saved, that you need his atonement for your sin, and believe and trust. And when you do, you will be brought to life. And these terrifying events of the future are no longer terrifying because those who are in Christ are safe from the wrath of God. 
And we can know that prophecy will be fulfilled just as God said it would be, and that we are saved just as He said we would be when we trust Him. Join us next week as we complete the book of Daniel with a study of chapter 12. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.